Hey everybody, welcome to the Life Canton podcast. Don't be alarmed, Roger is out on vacation, so I am filling in for the week. My name is Jared, I'm one of the pastors, and you're going to hear from me twice because you're about to listen to a sermon from me as well, but I wanted to give a quick intro to the podcast, say welcome to anybody who's been listening for months or years, or if you're joining us for the very first time, we're glad that you are with us. And I would love for you to consider coming in person and visiting us on this Saturday uh, for Christmas Eve services, uh, actually just one service at 2.30 p.m., but you can come early. We're going to have refreshments before and after. It's just going to be one service for the whole family, and we'll have candlelight while we sing Christmas carols and hear a message of hope as well. So I hope you are able to join us for that. Also, if you are um, excited about what God is doing at Life Canton, and you, and you want to be a part of that, you want to invest in that, I want to encourage you to go to lifecanton.org finance and consider how you might be generous to what God is doing um, in this time at our church. Uh, and then now we are going to go into our God With Us series, and I'm going to be talking about Simeon's praise. So I hope you enjoy the message. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to greet anybody who's listening uh, live online uh, later on the podcast. We're glad that you're joining us as well. For those of you in the room, if this is your first time here, welcome. We're super glad that you are here. You came at a great time. I want to make sure that you get connected as well, and so there's going to be a QR code on the screen. You can scan that with your phone, um, or eventually you can download the Church Center app so that you won't have to keep on scanning this, but you can just go and check out the Church Center app and find out everything that's going on here at this church and then get connected in that way. Uh, I'm glad that you're here to be part of this series that we've been in called God With Us. And that actually is a phrase that comes from a name that we get in the Old Testament of the scriptures. We get this name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. And that had implications for the people of the ancient world. It certainly has meaning and uh, it's profound for us as well. But originally, to the original hearers, that had major implications that God was going to be with them. And there was power in that as well. So throughout this series, we've been talking about the people's responses to God being with them, to God arriving and showing up in a maybe new way that they hadn't necessarily anticipated. And so we talked about Mary, the Magnificat, the Magnificent, her song in her response to Jesus coming. And then we talked about last week, Nathan's message. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you can go back, listen to that. But about Zechariah or Zacharias, uh, as some translations talk about his story and how he initially responded, but sort of in an incorrect way. And so God redeems him even in that process. Today, we're going to be talking about another figure that maybe isn't as well known in the story of the birth of Jesus, but that's going to make sense in just a little bit. But as we get there, I want to ask you a question first for you to think about, and I want a response from you, out loud response, to answer this question. Have you ever waited for something to arrive? You waited very long for something to arrive, but then it was different than what you thought it was, than what you thought it was supposed to be. But not only that, Not only was it different, but you realized, wow, it's actually better than what I thought it was. Do you have the thing in mind that you're thinking about? Go ahead and shout it out on the count of three. One, two, three. Okay. Did anybody say spouse? Your your spouse? You waited for... Okay, anyway. It was better. 
It was different, but it was better. Now, let me ask you this, maybe uh, to stretch the illustration out just a little bit more. How many of you, when that thing arrived, you realized it was different than what you thought it was, but it took a really long time to realize that it was actually better than what you thought it was? Oh, <laughs> I don't know what you're clapping for, but I want to know what your thing is. That's great. I want to talk to me after this. I want to hear what that thing is. We're going to look at a story that has implications as far as something showing up that is a little bit different than what they had thought it was going to be, but they have to ask the question, is it better? Is it better? And the answers for that question are a little bit different. We're going to look at that. It's in Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can join me in there. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screens, and so you can follow along in that way. I'm going to start in chapter 2 and starting in verse 21. It says this, Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. When it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child, so his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I'll stop there for just a second, because if you're newer to the Bible, there's a whole lot of uh, very Jewish or Israelite, but very Jewish ritualistic things that are happening just in this passage alone um, that we don't necessarily always understand as Western Christians or as Western people. And so there's a whole lot of detail that we could talk about um, in terms of what is happening, but just for the sake of time, uh, Mary and Joseph have had this child. They've had Jesus, and now they're going through a dedication service at the temple in Jerusalem. Just for a little bit of context about why this is meaningful, uh, Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth, which is up in the northern part of the nation of Israel. They're having to travel to Bethlehem, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It's not too far, but it's a, it's a good walking distance. They're in Bethlehem because they have to register for a census that is taking place in the country. But now you dedicate your baby at the temple, which is in Jerusalem. So, so they're kind of all over the place. It's a, it's a really long road trip. They're away from uh, their family. They're away from their resources. Um, but they're also very dedicated to honoring the, the Jewish customs and the Jewish rituals. So they go and they dedicate Jesus, uh, but what they're supposed to do is to offer up a sacrifice, also very common practice in this particular environment. And what is normal for a person or a family with a little bit more wealth, a little bit more income, is when you get to the temple, there's basically an area where you can purchase livestock or different things, resources, to be able to give a sacrifice. Oftentimes, if you have a little bit more money, it would be a lamb, it would be a goat. It would show your dedication to this process. But if you were poor, there was a minimum requirement. A pair of turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Now, that's not, that's not what that's about. No, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The minimum requirement. So Mary and Joseph are poor. They are away from their homeland, yet they are, or their, their home city, essentially. And they have this opportunity now to dedicate Jesus to the temple, to the Lord. So you can imagine all of the emotions that are going on in this very customary thing. Let's go and read on uh, the next part of the story. What happens at the temple? Verse 25. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. 
That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. Simeon, let's talk about him for just a second. This is the only place that he shows up in, in the scriptures and in this story. We don't hear a lot about Simeon. Uh, and so we might think that he's some random dude that's about to just take the baby away from Mary and Joseph. He's not a creepy old guy. He's there for a reason. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him to be there, to be part of this process, to see the Lord's Messiah. And then I love this phrase, he's eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. That is Advent, that is God with us, that is Emmanuel all wrapped up into one sentence right there. This eager anticipation for God to arrive and to show up in a new way and to rescue us. That's what we celebrate in this season. That's what the church around the globe celebrates in Advent. And now Simeon gets to be a part of that story. He's also uh, righteous and devout. We don't know a ton about him. It doesn't say that he's a priest, but he's around the temple. So he must have some nobility. People must know that he has this level of righteousness and devotion to God. And so he has this ability and this opportunity to be part of this dedication ceremony. Let's continue to read on in terms of how he responds. The rest of verse 28. He took the child in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He's been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. What is going on there? What is that about? That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time, talking about Simeon's praise and his response, his blessing to Mary and Joseph. What is going on? I want to talk about three observations from this specific passage. And I want to talk about how God with us brings peace. God with us brings peace. But God with us will be provocative as well. Maybe you sense that as we were reading that. And then lastly, God with us will be soul-piercing. Soul-piercing. First of all, let's just spend a few minutes talking about God with us brings peace. God with us brings peace. Peace. And in a lot of ways, we could say, uh, because Simeon says it, now let your servant die in peace. There's a sense of resolve. We assume that Simeon is probably an older guy, that death is on the horizon, and now he has uh, had this promise fulfilled. And so now there is a sense of peace that he has. He can die in peace. I was uh, in student ministries for about 10 years at my previous church, and oftentimes we'd have conversation with our middle school and high school students, and they would talk about how they had to wait for something, and there was, how it was hard to be patient to wait for something, especially when they were thinking about the relationship to God. God, when are you going to do something for me? Whether it's, you know, help me get a good grade on a test, or uh, maybe I ask this person out and I want their answer. I want to know if they like me or not, or am I going to get into the college that I I applied to get into. And so they'd have to wait for, you know, maybe 24 or 48 hours or maybe even a couple weeks. Students, can you imagine waiting for an entire lifetime for one promise to be fulfilled? That God said, this is going to happen. 
but to have to wait a lifetime for it. Simeon has peace now, knowing that God has arrived and that he has shown up and he will bring about redemption and rescue. There is a sense of peace and resolve for Simeon now that he has experienced this arrival of God. But what kind of peace is God going to bring in Jesus? It's a kind of peace that's actually provocative. It's a, it's a different kind of peace, a holistic peace that is provocative. Why is it provocative? And maybe some of you are like, wait, I, I didn't see any, anything that was provocative in here necessarily. I want to talk about why this is provocative. Some of these phrases that stick out to me are this phrase, salvation for all people. Salvation for all people. And he will reveal God to the nations. Why is that provocative? Well, it's important that we understand a little bit more uh, depth into these words. That word nations is the Greek word ethnon, which is where we get the word ethnic. Ethnic, ethnicity. He will reveal God to the ethnicities. What is he talking about here? Well, guess what? There are going to be other people groups that are going to be invited into what God is doing in the world. That's provocative in the first century and for the first century people and specifically for the Jewish people in the first century. It's provocative because uh, this feels like it's different. God arriving is provocative because it's different than what we thought it was going to be. Is it different? Is it better? Well, we can answer one of those questions. It is sort of different, but not necessarily. Let me explain. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God shows up to this man named Abraham. And at that point, God hadn't necessarily set out to choose a people group through which he would reveal himself to the rest of the world. So he chooses Abraham and he says, Abraham, you're blessed to be a blessing. You are set apart, you are chosen, and your people group that you will be the father of will be a distinct people group and you are blessed to be a blessing to the nations. There's that word again, nations, ethnicities. Another word we get is Gentiles, which is basically anybody who is not Jewish, anybody who is not part of the children of Israel. You are to be set apart. In other words, you are going to be chosen, but you have a function. And your function is to represent God's light and hope and mercy and love and joy to the rest of the world. That's great news. That's actually good news in the very early part of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Guess what? The whole rest of the Old Testament is them forgetting their function. They don't do it. They're blessed and they take on that sort of moniker for themselves. Yes, we are chosen. We are set apart. But they develop a tribalistic or ethnocentric view of the world. What do I mean by that? What's ethnocentrism? Basically, it's this view that we stick with our own kind. My ethnicity is better than your ethnicity. I am set apart. I am different. I am better than, and every other ethnicity is bad or wrong. Ethnocentrism. Tribalistic, ethnocentric perspective of themselves and the rest of the world. And so, therefore, they gave up on their purpose and their function to be a blessing to the nations. Fast forward to the first century. And now Simeon, a Jew, here says, 
He will reveal God to the nations, to the other ethnicities. This would have been provocative to the people. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we see the separation of Jew and Gentile, but we don't fully get this, um, the discomfort that comes with the hostility and the division between them. And so I think sometimes it's important to talk about maybe more of a modern context. I was just talking this last week with somebody who grew up in India and talking about the caste system that has been around for hundreds of years, not necessarily now by law, but you can imagine how that over time has developed a sort of stratification between people groups. You stay where you are. If you're in nobility, you stay there. The rich get richer. If you are poor, if you live in the slums, if you are the untouchable, you stay there, essentially. And maybe some of us understand a little bit of that. Maybe let's take it one step further and we can talk about what's been done in this country through something called Jim Crow laws, which existed for over 100 years from 1874 to 1975. Jim Crow was alive and well in this country. And it's not just important to talk about what it did in the country, in the nation, in the government, but it's even more important for us to talk about how the church, specifically white churches, actually pushed that Jim Crow agenda. And it's unsettling to look back at our history or even within the present and to see what things continue on. And I thought about all of the different images that I could show to draw that up within us. But at the same time, I recognize that there are people of other backgrounds and cultures where some of those images are actually extremely unsettling to the point where they are traumatizing, which I don't want to contribute to. So I only landed on one image in Jim Crow laws were this idea that there's separate but equal. Black Americans were separate, but they were equal. So there was a separation, there was a division. And so there's different bus seats, there's different restaurants, there's even different drinking fountains. If I show an image like this, even for some of us, we have to catch our breath a little bit because it's unsettling to see something like this. Imagine what this does to the psyche of an entire people group. Not just to the people that these laws are enforced upon, but also for the ones who do the enforcing. We start to get really confused about what the image of God or what being created in the image of God actually Means And now take that unsettling, discomforting feeling and project that back into this division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century. And how provocative this would have been for Simeon to say, I have seen your salvation which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, to the ethnicities, to the Gentiles. This would have been unsettling to a tribalistic, ethnocentric group of people. And now Simeon, a Jew, is praising God that this new prophetic correction is about to take place. But he's also acknowledging that this prophetic correction is going to mess with their strongly held, albeit misguided, beliefs of exclusion and division that had developed over time. They even thought of themselves as clean, and the Gentiles are unclean. That does something. And so because it is provocative, 
Simeon recognizes that this will also be soul-piercing. This will pierce your very souls. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Is it different? Well, yes and no. It's different than what they thought it was going to be, but it's not different than what God had intended it to be. Question they have to ask is, will it be better? Is it better? It will pierce their very souls. I want you to see what Luke does with the progression of this story. The first part that I started out with, maybe some of you are like, I don't understand any of that. The dedication, the purification, the, the, the sacrifices, all of it is very, very Jewish. It's very, um, very stuck in their Israelite tradition. It's part of their sacrificial system, their temple system. This is something you and I, as Gentiles, don't understand fully. But then he begins this progression all the way to verse 35. And by the time we get to verse 35, it's a very different story. Let me show you some of these verses. In verse 25, it says, He's eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue who? Israel. Period. He's just coming to rescue Israel. That's how they thought. That's how the first century Jewish people all would have believed. Of course, the Messiah is coming to rescue Israel. So that's their understanding of the arrival of God through Jesus. That's what this is supposed to be about. He is coming to rescue us, the chosen ones, the set-apart ones. But then we get to verse 32. It says, A light to reveal God to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the ethnicities, but the glory of your people, Israel. So there's a slight progression. There's a slight change. It's like, okay, okay, God's going to reveal himself to the Gentiles. That's great. But we're still the good ones. We are still the clean ones. We're still the glory of your people, Israel, right? They have a certain perspective of themselves. They're still seeing themselves as set apart, as chosen. But then we move on to verse 34. The child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. Many will oppose him. Wait a second, what? Wait, what? That took a turn. That's not cool. What do you you mean? Like, oppose you. I'm going to fall. What, what is that about? This is definitely different, but is it better? Apparently not. Apparently God's arrival through the person of Jesus, Simeon is prophetically saying, it's not going to be better for some people. Many will fall. Many will oppose him. And then we get to verse 35. The deep thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and their souls will be pierced. The way God arrives and what the mission of Jesus does to include other ethnicities, the Gentiles, will be opposed. Not everybody's going to be on board with this. I thought about it this way. Uh, Those who are opposed will be exposed. We have to ask ourselves the questions. Are we opposed? Are we opposed to what God is doing? Are we opposed to this mission? See, I think what Luke is doing is being extremely intentional here with how he records these events and shows this progression of praise. And here's the thing that we need to understand is that the primary audience that Luke is writing to are Gentiles. They're Gentiles. They're going to see this story in a very different way. They're going to see themselves in the story. And by the way, I need to mention this. We're all Gentiles, by the way. 
We are all the Gentiles. Sometimes I think as, as American Christians or as just as Christians in general, or maybe sometimes even as a white Christian, I see myself as the set apart one. I see myself as the chosen one, as the clean one. No, we're the outsider. We're the Gentiles. We're the unclean. We have to read ourselves into the story in the right context. Luke is essentially writing to us. We are all on the outside, and now we get to be included. That would have been provocative in the first century. It would have been soul-piercing. But Luke is being very intentional with what he is doing and, and, and enlightening the entire story from the very beginning and then all the way to the book of Acts. See, Luke actually writes this book. He writes the, the narrative, the gospel of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. But he also writes Acts. It's considered Luke-Acts. It's like a Luke-Acts, part one, part two. It's one continuous story, the story of Jesus and how that stretches into the church. Here's the thing. By the time that we get to the book of Acts, the story of God's mission for the Gentiles doesn't actually happen until about 40 or 50 years after this event with Simeon. They don't actually start including the Gentiles into the family of God, into the mission of what God is doing until about 40 or 50 years after. I asked you at the beginning, is it different than what you expected? And is it better than what you expected? And how long did it take for you to realize not only is it different, but it is better? It took these people 40 to 50 years to include them into the story. You're going to hear about that story actually in January from Bridget. And I'm super excited to hear that. But Simeon's praise here, the point of Simeon's praise is that God with us means the walls of hostility and division are coming down between Jew and Gentile. And you, the reader of this progressive praise, must decide, will you oppose it? Or will you submit to the work of God? It is maybe different than what you thought it was supposed to be. But you also have to decide, is it better? See, Simeon's praise is challenging our thinking, how we view God, how we view ourselves, and how we view what we deem as the outsider, the other. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a man in the 19th century, his name's Oliver Wendell Holmes, and uh, he's got wonderful mutton chops that I wish I could have, but I don't think my wife would stick with me if that's the uh, sideburns that I went with, but that's another story. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, was an incredibly smart, intelligent man. He was a doctor, a writer, a poet. Um, at the time that he was practicing medicine, uh, there was something that was going on that was really tragic, actually. There was something called the purpural fever. Not purple, but purpural fever. It was postpartum infection is another name. It goes by other names as well. But what they were finding is that after women uh, would have a child, um, they were, they were dying. They were developing this infection and then dying at an alarming rate. And it was a really scary time. And so Oliver Wendell Holmes, among others, were trying to figure out, well, what's the situation here? What, how, how can this be fixed? And what he observed is that doctors were performing a, a childbirth and then they would uh, leave that scenario and then they would go and perform another procedure. But they would do so without washing their hands. Exactly. You, you, you feel that, right? You're like, ugh, that's gross. Okay, that, 
we're in the 21st century. Of course you wash your hands. Maybe you even add gloves and wear a mask and get sterilized and all of that other stuff. They weren't even washing their hands. Weren't even washing their hands. And so Oliver Wendell Holmes discovered uh, a, a potential thing that could help. He was actually observing the midwives because their process was different. They were washing their hands. And so he decided that, well, if, if we just simply wash our hands, then we could probably eliminate this infection altogether. We could dramatically reduce the infection and the death as well. Seems like an obvious decision, right? Seems like something you and I'd be like, yep, I'm, I'm on board with that. Please wash your hands before you come and touch my body. Yes, I'm good with that one. Guess what? Major resistance. Major resistance to this process. And here's what they said. They said, doctors are gentlemen. And gentlemen, gentlemen's hands are clean. Real scientific, right? <laughs> that, that's, not, that's what it was. That was their response. That was their resistance. And that resistance took place for another 12 years. They didn't make the change. And in fact, they locked up Oliver Wendell Holmes in a mental institution to keep him quiet. Think about what that does in the human mind and the human spirit. We are so stuck in our ways at times that we cannot consider a change. So stuck that making a change is extremely difficult and sometimes takes us way longer than it should. And as a result of that, it has massive, detrimental, devastating impacts on others if we don't make the change. Simeon is calling for a change. Calling for a change in our understanding, in his praise, and saying, this is going to come. There is going to continue to be division. Are you opposed to the work of God, or will you submit to this correction that we need to make? If we don't make the change, the result of our opposition will have devastating impact on others. I believe that Simeon is challenging the status quo, not because he's woke or making some political move, but because he has actually awakened to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon him. The Holy Spirit led him to be part of this process. And he speaks a prophetic correction to what God has always intended to do. It just took them a whole lot of years to get there. To get where? To move toward this multi-ethnic, multicultural body of believers toward oneness. Is it different? It's not different than what God intended to do. It's different than what we make up in our own minds, what we think it should be. Is it better? It absolutely is better. Here's why I know that. Church, we are becoming a multi-ethnic church here. It's exciting. We, we are part of a multi-ethnic church by sociologists' uh, definitions of what that means in numbers. I don't think we're all there yet. There is much more work to be done, but we can be excited about the beauty of what our church is and is becoming. Yeah, we can clap for that. We are a multi-ethnic body. The walls of hostility are coming down in the first century as well. The Apostle Paul speaks about this when he writes to the Galatian church. He says, there is neither Jew or Gentile anymore. 
or slave or free or male and female. There, we don't understand ourselves by our distinctions anymore, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Jew and Gentile is a religious distinction as well as an ethnic one. Slave and free is is an economic, a class distinction. And then male and female is a gender distinction. Yes, we are these distinctions, although I would argue against the slave and free. We're all free in Christ. We all need to be free in Christ, but we don't know ourselves by our distinctions. Yes, it's a part of who we are and who we're becoming, but we are one in Christ Jesus. Simeon is paving the way for this, whether we see it or not. It brings peace, a different kind of peace. It is provoking for those of us who might be stuck in our ways, and it will pierce our souls unless we understand that it's actually better than what we ever had imagined it to be. We're moving toward a multi-ethnic body. It doesn't just happen overnight. It doesn't just happen because I say it happens. This is a collective effort that we move toward as a church through discipleship. I believe that Simeon's praise, whether he knew it or not, is actually paving the way for a multi-ethnic, multicultural discipleship. And this is actually deeply embedded into the vision of our church to reclaim our identity, not in our distinctions, but in Jesus, and to bear the torch of Christ's justice and love. Bearing the torch doesn't magically happen overnight. It has to come through discipleship. What kind of discipleship? I've been reading a book called Color Courageous Discipleship by Michelle Sanchez. She's actually a leader in our ECC denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. A profound thinker and writer, and she's right, she wrote this book called Color Courageous Discipleship. And actually, our denomination is leading the way in racial justice and racial righteousness and multicultural churches. So I'm excited to be a part of that. And so I want to give you an action step, and that action step is to pick up this book. If you're looking for something to read over the holidays, if you like to read, read Color Courageous Discipleship by Michelle Sanchez. Sometimes we just give you an action step. I want you to understand that we are taking an action step as well. Me and Pastor Nathan have been reading this book, and we're recognizing the weight and the the, uh, importance of going through all of our systems, all of our policies, all of our discipleship stuff, our life journey stuff, and refining it, fine-tuning it, making it better, making it more color courageous as well. This has to be the effort that we pursue because we are a multi-ethnic church. That is awesome, but there is more work to be done to move toward oneness. Moving toward oneness requires that we have an understanding and an honor and a grace of our different experiences and encounters. And so we could talk about those things here at the church, but I think it's also important that we talk about it at home, in our homes, with our families. We talk about this stuff all the time in our family. Uh, I have three kids. I have uh, a son that's 12 and then twin girls that are 10. And so we, we have these discussions regularly. And I'm beginning to see that it's actually having an impact in my son's life. Uh, what he found out this year, this fall actually, is that somebody he knows that he rides the bus with, that he has a couple classes with, uh, called somebody the N-word on a team and got kicked off the team. And there's a part of me that's like, I don't don't really want to be around that. I don't want my son to be around that. But my son actually engaged even more and befriended this individual. And now this student is coming over to our house after school each day. 
And so we get an opportunity to sort of rub off on him from time to time, hopefully. And I don't say that to say, my, well, my son is perfect. My son has, you know, cultural intelligence all figured out. No, he's still 12, right? Like he still makes a lot of weird noises and has a lot of weird smells too, but he is starting to get it. He's actually reading literature about justice and about multicultural uh, distinctions and the importance of those. And so I, I am proud of him. I, I really am proud of him as a dad, but also as a pastor of a church that is trying to pursue oneness in our distinctions. This has to happen at home. These conversations can happen in order for us to disciple one another toward multicultural, multi-ethnic discipleship. It's also important to look at the voices that influence us. He also takes piano lessons from a, a young man of color. And so they don't just do piano lessons, but they talk about life and they talk about school and they talk about friendships. And they talk about all these things. So I would say this as well. This is my second action step. Don't just make a disciple, but also be a disciple. What other voices and influences are in your life? Are you including the voices of color? Are you including other genders as well in your life to speak into you, to listen, to grow, to honor and show grace to one another as we develop ourselves toward oneness? One of the ways that I'm doing that is, I mentioned before, I meet with a counselor on a regular basis. I specifically chose a counselor that's a person of color. It's an older, much wiser African-American man that speaks into my life. And yes, my mental health is, is getting better. I'm growing in that way in my mind, in my spirit, my, my soul, my heart, all of those ways. But I'm also getting a much more holistic, a much more well-rounded view of myself and the people around me as a result of being in his influence. Bridget says it this way, it's important to be an influence, but it's also important to be under the influence. I'm not talking about alcohol. Yeah, we can clap for that one too. Be under the influence of other people that have more wisdom, that have other experiences to form you into the person that God has always intended you to be. I'm really excited about where we are headed as a church. I'm excited about the discipleship, the multi-ethnic, multicultural discipleship that is happening within our body. And let's keep moving forward. Simeon's praise is a Christmas message that sets the tone for what our church can be. As I close, I recognize that some of you are new to this, maybe provocative, maybe soul-piercing, but yet peace-filled, hope-filled message of God's arrival. And, and maybe you felt like you were one on the outside because you didn't think that you were actually included into what God was doing. And so I want to invite you to pray a prayer of reclamation, of reclaiming your identity in Jesus and becoming part of a group that is pursuing oneness. It might be a risk for some of us to pray that prayer, to ask Jesus to enter into our life, to make him central to who we are. But I want to invite you to pray maybe a new prayer today. Would you stand with me if you're able? I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. And as we think about Simeon, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. That spirit is the word ruach, which means breath. I want to ask you all 
just to take one big, deep, collective breath. And as you exhale, you acknowledge this presence of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the peace that the Spirit brings. God, as we breathe in your presence, we recognize our own shortcomings. God, I can recall to my mind moments where I have made somebody the other, where I have made them the outsider, where I have contributed to division and hostility, and then I recognize that I was on the outside. And through your sacrifice, you reconciled me to yourself. God, there are people in this room who need to be reconciled to your side. Draw them close. Allow them to experience your love that we sing about that is so rich and strong. And then turn that love outward so that we as a body can pursue oneness. God, thank you that your arrival changes us, makes us whole, makes us new. And it might be different than what we thought it was, but it is so much better. Once again, thank you so much for joining us for that message. And I hope that it inspired you in some kind of way in order to um, take a next step in your faith um, to reclaim your identity in Jesus. And if that's you, we would love to know about that. So fill out a connect card. You can go to lifecanton.org slash connect and uh, we will be able to be in touch with you and help you take a next step in your faith as well. And once again, we hope to see you on Christmas Eve, December 24th. That's a Saturday this week at 2.30, but you can come as early as 1.45. There will be some refreshments. You can invite a friend. Um, it'll just be a, a very much a you belong kind of environment and uh, everybody's welcome. So we hope to see you there. If we don't, have a wonderful Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll see you back here real soon.